0: three two one into the absurd episode number 18 with gerald fleur he is a uh well he studies anthroposophy and he was a teacher at waldorf school uh, which is kind of this revolutionary sort of education um but yeah uh thank you for being on the podcast
1: i'm glad to be here Greg. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, so uh so what's a Waldorf school all about?
1: Uh well it's uh it's a very holistic type of education. It's uh rigorous, and so uh reading, writing, arithmetic are certainly uh, uh uh well presented, but it's also very artistic. So there's a lot of uh painting and drawing. Um Lots of uh, performing arts kind of activities, speech, exercises, singing, music, uh, physical activities that are uh, less like gym and more like uh, organized games and uh, different activities, but could include juggling and things like that. And uh, I know I'm leaving a bunch out. Oh, foreign languages are presented. And I'm sure there's more that I'm leaving out, but uh, perhaps we can get back to that in time, yes. The the uh, the basis of Waldorf education is that it's an anthroposophically based education. Uh, it was uh, founded by Rudolf Steiner, who's the one who really coined the term anthroposophy and and made that presentation. Um, he was uh, born in eighteen. 61 february i guess they don't know the exact date it looks like uh, they've got down the 27th of the 25th of february 1861 and then he passed away uh the end of march 1925 um i suppose i should give you a little bit of background about myself
0: um, yes i would appreciate that
1: sure um, <clears throat> well i i got a uh my uh b.a in um Social science at the Chico State in California, and I was just—I uh, was thinking I'd become a teacher. I was primarily thinking I'd become a, a high school teacher, um, but then after a while, I uh, decided I didn't really want to do that, and I kind of started my own Waldorf uh, school class um, in Mount Shasta, California, and uh, and then moved on to. Uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, where I taught uh, Waldorf education for 16 years as a class teacher at the Sandpoint Waldorf School. And uh, also uh, have been there, oh, maybe about six additional years subbing, uh, doing um, uh, what we call blocks, blocks, subject blocks, and um, uh, mentoring teachers, Uh, doing some uh, lectures for teachers in China who wanted to know about Waldorf education, and lots of uh, different study groups uh, covering uh, anthroposophy. My introduction to anthroposophy actually uh, happened around 1981 while I was in Mount Shasta. I met some people there who uh, founded the American Eurythmy School. And Eurythmy is an art form that uh, Rudolf Steiner developed. And um, uh, so I had never heard of any of that before and started uh, looking into his background and what his books were all about. And uh, to give you some uh, better idea of uh, Rudolf Steiner, he was uh, an Austrian. Um, He got his PhD in philosophy Uh, primarily on a presentation on the philosophy of freedom, uh, the idea that it is possible for us to know, uh, and even though knowing is an unusual state, as he describes it, um, it nevertheless is possible, and therefore it brings about the possibility of free action based upon knowing. Uh, So that was his philosophy, and his dissertation basically was on that uh, topic, and he wrote then a, a separate book that he called The Philosophy of Freedom afterwards. Uh, But what is uh, additionally profound about Steiner is that he is a clairvoyant and a clairaudient. Um, I say is, uh, was, um, and he was uh, aware of this ability since he was uh, quite young Um, but kept it quiet after several experiences that are quite common for people who have this ability that they realize it's an unusual ability and uh, people tend to frown upon it. Uh, And also uh, uh, academics frown upon it, which he uh, was aware of of that too. And uh, somewhere around, uh, uh, looks like about 1899, He started making presentations, you might say, coming out of the closet and uh, speaking of his uh, clairvoyant observations uh, from a more of a scientific presentation so that he he had a very scientifically oriented mind and he was bringing a very clear classification of uh, what he was observing and presenting to people. And he initially presented to the Theosophical Society. And in 1902, he actually became the head of the German section of the society. Um, And after a period of time, uh, somewhere around 1912, 1913, uh, the members of the society were advocating that uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti was uh, the the second coming uh, of Christ. I I believe it was Christ or Messiah, something to this effect. And uh, Steiner said, no, that's an incorrect uh, view. And uh, they had a controversy. And eventually he removed himself along with a fair group of other people. And they formed uh, the Anthroposophical Society. And then from... That basis, he then uh, made presentations or written works of uh, uh, what what are known as his basic books. uh, The Philosophy of Freedom, which I already mentioned, and we should go into that a little bit more. And then a book called Theosophy that he wrote, and uh, an outline of occult science was sort of his sequel to that book, where he really goes into both of those books, Theosophy and Occult Science, about uh, his. uh, clair clairvoyance and clairaudience and his observation spiritual uh, studies and then uh, people wanted to know, also know well how does one attain to these abilities that he was demonstrating and so he wrote a book called uh, How Is Knowledge of Higher Worlds Attained where he presents the entire process which is quite rigorous. Uh, I think many people in reading that book would go, well, that's something that would probably take place over a lifetime or uh, perhaps uh, another lifetime. Uh, certainly uh, reincarnation is something that Steiner did present. And then he also was uh, very focused on uh, presenting Christianity. In fact, one of his books was Christianity as a mystical fact and um, where he goes through showing that uh, the Christ. Uh, was an actual incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, he himself uh, thought that this was quite uh, amazing because he did not really believe, as he was uh, growing up, that this was an actual occurrence. Uh, and then in his studies, he did find that this to be the case. And he uh, had quite a few books, that uh, lectures that he gave on uh, the Gospels, on Christ, and uh, spoke of uh, the Christ impulses lying behind everything that he did, including um, uh, the writing of uh, the philosophy of freedom. So this whole uh, impulse of freedom of the individual to uh, seek freedom, he, he regards that as a Christ impulse. And if you're okay, Greg, I, I'd like to go into that a little bit, uh, the basis of that.
0: Yes. Oh, and um, I was going to ask you, so uh, so in his belief, was, uh, was knowledge essentially the fundamental basis of free will? That's right. Okay.
1: That, uh, that really without knowing, you could argue there is no such thing as uh, mm. freedom. That as long as you're unaware of what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, it could be said, well, something else is uh, driving you, uh, mm. uh, is, is leading you and so forth. So is, course, is, yeah, is,
0: awareness in, in, is awareness included in knowledge? Uh,
1: I would have to say yes. Uh, I don't really see a distinction mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, well, for example, uh, he focused upon that uh, in thinking, our present understanding of thinking, and he had quite an expansive view of thinking, basically anything that you can draw a concept from, conceptualize from. So that would include the intellect, that would include uh, an imaginative pictorial state would be very, um, a thousand, well, pictures are worth a thousand words, and then living pictures are... Uh, all that much more. That, that would be uh, a real inflowing of of conceptual information. And then he had also uh, inspiration as an aspect of thinking, uh, that one has a, uh, an opening to an intuitive uh, certainty. And these intuitions, the intuition is what lies even all the way through all aspects of thinking, all the way down to uh, intellectualization. Um, And so in in that I can think and uh, and experience through just any kind of basic exercise, like uh, taking a pencil, for example, and just thinking about pencil and how it's created and observing your own thought processes your own production of thought around this idea of pencil as you hold that in your mind, concentrating. uh, That the experience of thinking can be one where I know I am thinking, I know that I am producing this. And as I go into that, uh, I can also then experience that in thinking, uh, I have something that is itself a reality, a self-sustaining reality. And in fact, I come upon uh, all that I would declare as being real or as truly there uh, through thinking. I I come to some kind of conceptualization or knowing about what it is. Uh, So thinking itself is the root uh, that he was finding as being behind everything that we see in the world, all meaning. Uh, The logos is sometimes how this is put. And then this transfers into his idea that this is a a Christ uh, uh, basis. And from that, I can then begin to uh, conceive myself. Uh, You might say conceive myself anew or initiate myself. Uh, And I'm doing so out of this very divine reality that was before I ever conceived of anything as conceptual or uh, that I existed. And yet uh, through this, you might call it saving grace, I can bring about my own being, a new being, a being of uh, that I bring forth from my own knowing and activity. Uh, obviously, this is an experiential thing, but it's also uh, something that cannot be achieved in a short period of time. He had a huge evolutionary uh, vision of how this would take place. And uh, a human being begins by first having this conceiving idea and then uh, begins to proceed very slowly over course of millennia lifetimes uh, to eventually achieve a re-emergence into the spiritual realities. Uh, he saw this as a, uh, a distinction between what uh, he said was the true path prior to the coming of Christ into the, uh, into the earth was uh, related by Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Um, that basically it's, it's more of a dissolving, you might say, back into the whole. Um, whereas this is passing through the eye of the needle, if you will, the eye being the human ego, the eye, and then re-emerging into the spiritual, that the individual is now taking responsibility, not only for themselves, but for the world. And of course, uh, just looking around, uh, this is a long ways to go. And uh, the ego or the development of the eye being very uh, young, very immature still at this stage. And I think that that's probably the biggest argument against it is that it is so obviously flawed and uh, it still holds, I think, a strong attraction for people to see it as being sort of in the way, as something to be dissolved, uh, to be uh, maybe overcome is the view, I'm not a Buddhist, I don't know all of the different terminologies. But I can appreciate very much that, that particular uh, view. And uh, I don't know if you have any questions on that, but that, that in a nutshell is his presentation on um, uh, the philosophy of freedom. He actually doesn't bring in Christ or mention Christ other than to say that uh, no authority uh, exists over the individual, that they, are, they truly are the ones who would determine for themselves. So I think some people see it as a uh, almost like an anarchist Bible or something like that for, for some folks.
0: What do you uh, mean by that?
1: Well, uh, anarchy is uh, sort of no government, no, yeah. uh, no, uh, no one over the individual. And so the individual then can associate with other individuals and come up with anything they want to come up with. Um, and each individual comes to their own experience of what really lies within themselves as their true love of calling, their love of their action that they wish to take and freely then out of themselves take that action. Um, so that's where I, I get this the idea that some people sometimes will refer to that as the, uh, an anarchist's Bible
0: this, so, so Buddhism, you know, you kind of dissolve your ego, you know, and it sounds yeah. like with, with anthroposophy, you almost, you, you'd kind of dissolve it into the whole universe in a sense. Is that kind of,
1: well, the, it you were your path, your with your I and your development of knowing that I am. hmm then you begin to work upon your, yourself. You were working mm-hmm. on your uh, emotional state, your, uh, your thinking. What are the ideas that are passing through my mind? Uh, what are my emotions? What are my feelings? What am I, uh, I become my own gatekeeper. I become my own author uh, of my life. And, uh, and then in doing so, I'm slowly raising myself into a spiritual awareness. My organs of perception begin to awaken, and but I don't lose my eye. Uh, I'm enhancing it in this sense. So I, I, uh, in that in that uh, distinction, it's it's quite a flip, you know. In terms, that's how he presents it: is that uh, when Christ actually comes, then it it becomes an inversion or a flip of what uh, was before, and. and that what was before was proper and right uh, in that time frame, But you might say that uh, human e- evolution had come to a point where now the I needed to become uh, developed and become the means by which an individual then returns to the spiritual. Hmm. Um, and uh, for me, for my Christian upbringing, um, that was appealing because most of the Christian faiths were not appealing to me. Um, hmm. uh, and to this day, I really don't have a, you know, a, a particular Christian faith. But uh, I did find this as fulfilling uh, several experiences that I had had in growing up that it allowed me to say that I can start to get behind this as, in terms of my own personal development. And uh, that this view of Christ is one that I can see is, is justified. And uh, I could embrace working this through for, you know, it's enough material to justify a lifetime's uh, work. Um, so uh, that's my particular path. Uh, uh, others will have different paths. Steiner was never, you know, insisting that this was the, the only way for anybody to... Uh, to gain access into the spiritual realities, it's just that he found it to be uh, suitable for people in uh, uh, in a modern society and modern life, uh, in in our current uh, situations that that uh, m- people arising and questioning and uh, seeking freedom would find this an appealing route, and he. Uh, Uh, based all of his other research and all of his anthroposophical findings upon this philosophy of freedom uh, foundation. So it was very important to him. And uh, uh, I'd I'd say a lot of people who become involved in anthroposophy aren't necessarily that involved in the uh, philosophy of freedom. Uh, I think they find it kind of challenging Hmm. to work through. And so it, he had lots of different, different presentations that he gave on different perspectives and different uh, ways of looking at things in order to uh, uh, find some uh, access to different individuals. Um, someone might be more artistically oriented, um, uh, find the, the rigor of the philosophy uh, too challenging. That's fine. Everybody's, everybody's who they are. Um, I suppose I should get into a little bit of uh, some of the basics of uh, his presentation of Anthroposophy, and uh, the most simple one is uh, body, soul, and spirit. And in the Waldorf school, I'm trying to remember the phrase that we would use. Uh, uh, shoot, hands and oh yeah, head, heart, and hands. Yeah, that was it. Um, So that you're developing uh every aspect of your being um so the body i think can can be something that we take for granted uh we think oh yes well we all know what the physical body is and to a certain extent it is very obvious but it's also very ephemeral um it's uh, here today gone tomorrow um so what does that mean? What, what, so what is the physical body? What, what is forming the physical body becomes a question. And so he came up with actually different aspects of body, and I can go into that in a little bit, but I wanted to go also into uh, this term soul. And I think that uh, it's good to have a very clear idea of what we mean. A lot of these terms generally kind of, uh, oh, they have vague notions of what... Uh, what we mean by soul, what do we mean by spirit? Maybe that's the same thing. And uh, so he used uh, one example was, uh, let's imagine uh, a field of uh, flowers that we're familiar with, maybe like daisies or something. And so the daisies are there and I can run my hand through them. And uh, I can see that uh, I I have a personal relationship to daisies. I, I like them. I like how they look. I feel a certain joy about them. Or I might find uh, that I really don't uh, like daisies that much. uh, Mm. Maybe they stink to me or something. Um, And so it's my my soul becomes this personal realm that is related to the world. And within my soul, I, I have my thinking and I have all my feelings and emotions. And I also have all my impulses of will that I carry forth. And so because I have this capacity to think, I have a bridge between my soul and uh, the spirit. And uh, the spirit becomes really what daisy is. Uh, Because the daisy as it's physically before me is not the same as in, say, two weeks after. I'll look at the daisy again. Well, it's no longer the same. It's changed. It's a taller plant now. Uh, or maybe when it was first coming up from the seed. Um, and then after it's flowered and uh, done everything, it's back to seed again. So the physical is never the same. That's not the eternal reality. Uh, that is a constantly changing reality, the physical world. And, but the spirit holds it intact, as you might say, as an, as an eternal reality, as an actual thing. And uh, so you, the, the idea, but the idea of daisy becomes its spiritual archetypal reality, but we have to get beyond just simply what we generally think of as idea. This has to become a living reality, a living idea, and also that uh, our thinking is just a bridge, just uh, you might say the ground level of entering into the spiritual reality of things. And so it comes back again to, well, then the spirit lies behind what is physically present. Um, And the idea of daisy is present, no matter how it is that I see the daisy today, tomorrow, a month from now. Now it's gone because it's winter, and I don't see it at all, and yet it's still there. It's still a reality. So that becomes this uh, body, soul, and spirit and in looking at the body, the physical body, we again go back to, well, it, it, it comes and it goes, it's ephemeral. Uh, so there must be some formative aspect to the body. And one way of uh, establishing that is uh, I go before a corpse and I see the physical corpse. And I, I know that the physical corpse will eventually decay and return back to the elements of the earth. And so what was it? It immediately becomes something uh, that I know must have been present in order for that body to have grown, to have lived, to have formed, to have become the body that I'm familiar with. And uh, this we could speak of as the formative body or etheric body. And uh, we would share this with the plants, the plant kingdoms, as compared to, say, the mineral kingdoms we would we would uh, see as uh, something comparable to what the uh, corpse will return to. It'll uh, decompose back into those mineral components. Um, So as I'm going on with this, he's really trying in a very scientific way to create very clear classifications by which we could have a discussion about uh, these realities that he was perceiving. Uh, and to go further, then he said, well, then there needs to be a housing or a, a, a housing for the, uh, the soul, um, all of our feelings and emotions and impulses. And he called this the astral body because of uh, the relationship to the stars that we awaken with the animal kingdom uh, every morning and we see the stars at night, we go back to sleep, we awaken again. And so we have an inner life that we share also with the entire animal kingdom.
0: So did he ever go into, uh, into lucid dreaming?
1: Um, he, he does in the knowledge of the higher worlds. He discusses how eventually a person can achieve a state where they're entirely awake in their dream state all, all the way through. They're, you're awake through your entire sleeping state. Uh, I've never personally achieved such a, a thing, but uh, uh, that sort of transcends lucid dreaming, but loose lucidity is certainly part of that mm-hmm. your dreams begin to become more coherent, you begin to become more aware in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course that's makes it lucid at that point.
0: So it's 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 astral projection to be fully awake in the dream the whole time, right?
1: Uh, perhaps, uh, but you're, you're transcending into, you know, what is astral projection that, that can be, uh, one aspect of the spiritual life or one aspect of the soul life, but then you can go beyond that. And, uh, and so you could speak of these different realms that one can penetrate into. And he, he goes into quite a bit of detail around that. So to uh, continue a little bit, then uh, we've got sort of the soul housing and then we have uh, our own spiritual aspect of our being that in terms of what we think of as the four kingdoms, the mineral, the plant, the animal, uh, the human being then is in somewhat of an isolated position where it is an I being and it is able to become self-conscious, self-aware. And in that self-awareness, I could begin to come to some of the things that I was talking about with the uh, uh, philosophy of freedom. And I begin to enter into an awareness of a a spiritual state of my being, that it's more than I'm just aware that I am. I become aware of what that actually means, that I give meaning to myself. And so I begin to create my own spirit self, uh, not not, you might say, th- solely from my own uh, forces, but from these forces that, that have been instilled into me through the Christ impulse. And so I become uh, able to look at my astral life or my, uh, my soul life, and I can begin to develop that. Uh, again, my, my thinking, thinking thoughts in a certain way. Maybe I start beginning to do meditative practices, concentration, I develop myself. I develop my uh, soul life. I do artistic activities. I do uh, uh, performing arts activities. I, I join men's group, women's groups. Uh, I begin to have a sense of, of uh, that I have certain flaws, you might say, or for certain things that I wish to change, maybe addictions that I have fallen into. And so I begin to change myself. And this is developing my spiritual self. And the further I go, I can then come into uh, another state where I become aware of spiritual beings, uh, higher beings. And he lists uh, the hierarchies, the angels, archangels, archai, all the way up into the seraphim. And these uh, angelic type beings, uh, the hierarchies, as I become more aware of them, they become uh, influences in my life. Uh, you might say religious activities, uh, although it doesn't have to be going to church as it were. I become aware of, of a, an inspiring rea- reality. In fact, uh, I begin to become aware that these uh, higher beings bring about my existence, that I wouldn't even be without them. And they have a, the enthusiasm that that brings into my life. and We call this a life spirit begins to emerge. Um, and then a further development we might call the spirit man, the uh, where I've actually penetrated into my physical body. The uh, life spirit is a, is addressing uh, the etheric body, and uh, and I'm, uh, I'm overcoming my uh, you might say my bad habits. Say just a simple way of uh, overcoming an addiction. Uh, I used to be addicted to coffee, and uh, took many many decades to finally get uh, free of coffee. Um, but that was one achievement you might say for me in, in addressing my uh, habit life.
0: <clears throat> um, I'm currently addicted.
1: Yes, uh, I can appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, I don't think I could have gotten through as a Waldorf teacher without uh, my coffee <laughs> addiction. <laughs> but it's an addiction. There's uh, As you get to look at more and more our lives we begin to see how unfree we are, you know, we in a pursuit of freedom, it it becomes very clear. There's very little that that I do in my life that I can can describe as my own. Uh, But I can begin to identify certain, you might say minuscule aspects of myself that I can directly control uh meditation for example is a totally free activity or a totally free deed and uh so there's there's one beginning you might say um so that runs through his aspects of a human being and and he comes up with many different ways of looking at it you could think of a a human being as a a unity a singularity you can think of as a duality you could think of him as a trinity uh, you could think of them as fourfold, you could think of them as sevenfold, ninefold, and he came up with all these different perspectives. And uh, he did so uh, primarily because uh, you can't really understand something unless you look at it from many different perspectives. Uh, say like a tree, you have to at least look at it from the north, the south, the east, and the west in order to get some nice sense of the tree. But there's really a, a view from it from above and a view from it from below and, uh, and so on. And from all of these different perspectives, one needs to constantly be working in order to gain some better idea of what, what is reality. So complexity was something that he, did, that he embraced, uh, that that was, that was part of what's really going on. I think uh, one other thing I should express is that my uh, there is a, an anthroposophical society of America, and there is a general anthroposophical society for that's um, based in uh, Dornach, Switzerland, for the whole society for the all of the world. Whoever wants to be part of the anthroposophical world, and uh, I don't particularly have any uh, uh, particular. Uh, Station within that society, that everything that I'm presenting is simply out of my own personal experience and I'm not representing the society in any way. I guess that's a legal disclaimer of some kind, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, he presents this material initially in, this, in his book, Theosophy. He goes through the experience of what happens to someone after they die Uh, the different realms that one passes through, the soul world, the spiritual world, and he ends both books, Theosophy and Occult Science, with uh, uh, quite a lengthy presentation on how one attains this ability to enter into these uh, spiritual realms, and that involves concentration, meditation, uh, various exercises. Um, He definitely um, suggested that uh, people work through Something similar to uh, the eightfold, eightfold Path exercises um, and the different the development of the different uh, chakras, your heart chakra exercises. He called those the Six Subsidiary Exercises. Uh, so it it's a very rich presentation that one can become quite immersed in um, and as well as uh, just very uh, superficially aware of. Um, there are Waldorf teachers that really don't embrace much, you might say, with the, the anthroposophical aspect of, of the work. Uh, and there are others that are completely dedicated to it and, uh, and immersed in it. So it's a, it's, it's a kind of a free association of individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like something that like you have to be an anthro. Uh, anthro.
1: Yeah. Uh, I suppose that, that there might be a certain ideal, uh, certainly the, the first Waldorf school that was in Stuttgart, Germany, I think everybody there was an anthroposophist, but in time uh, they had. it's just a practical reality. You need to bring in people to do, uh, say, the music music or uh, the foreign languages and so on. They may not be that interested or involved in uh, anthroposophy, they're aware of it because uh, you you tell them about it and so on but it's not really their life it's not their calling um and so they need to be free to pursue it or not pursue it otherwise there's uh, there's no freedom right so
0: and that's i mean perhaps one of the most important aspects of it
1: uh that is the the foundation of it yes mm. And, you know, within the, the society, the different anthroposophists, it's going to be very different views. There's going to be agreement about this, disagreement about that. That's just very normal. Uh, who the society itself is an institutional structure. Waldorf schools are institutional structures. So there's going to be disagreements uh, that people have. I myself, have, you know, after being a Waldorf teacher for quite a long time, have uh, views about, what would be a more ideal presentation for Waldorf education?
0: Hmm. And there'll be
1: those, oh, uh, more emphasis on the doing than, Hmm. uh, you know, the the activities. um, Actually, uh, for for example, uh, in first grade, the the students make their first readers and that becomes their first reading book. Hmm. And uh, so that idea... I would like to see furthered more in all aspects of the curriculum. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's challenging, it's, a, it's challenging work. Uh, I, I, I remember being more burned out as a, a Waldorf teacher in the sense of, of having a long work day um, than anything I've ever done. And I think that that's one of the big challenges that uh, Waldorf has is that the teachers feel just so overwhelmed with what they're they're looking at to do. They're, they're the ones creating the curriculum. It's constantly being developed and furthered. Mm-hmm. So there's a tendency to try to fix things. Well, this is how we will always do this, and this is how we will always do that. And we'll just keep doing it that way because it's it's easy. We can set up a tradition that way. Um, but actually, uh, you can also become trapped. You know, that mm-hmm. you can start to lose the life that you had in developing those curriculum,
0: those uh, those particular pedagogies. Because that gives you freedom to uh, uh, developing the curriculum. And if you can't uh, change the curriculum, if you can't uh, develop it, then you don't have freedom anymore.
1: Right. And also that becomes uh, stultifying for the the kids, the students. Uh, They sense that. A big part of uh, Waldorf education is this idea that uh, the teacher is an authority and that The authority is a uh, a key uh, pedagogical need for children of this age. Uh, And that is an authority is someone who is the author of their own life in an ideal sense. It's it's the philosophy of freedom, basically. Hmm. And so from that person then bringing to the uh, students uh, what they have learned and what they've uh, achieved, uh, ideally, they are actually uh, capable in these areas. They actually do know the mathematics. They do know the English, and of course, no one's perfect in these re- in this regard. But the, the the student, as they start to come of age, can then become themselves, their own authority, their own author, and uh, and so that's the ideal that uh, you're you're presenting an environment in which they can, in fact, achieve their own independence, their own ability to think clearly critically, I know, and I can act out of my knowing, I can at least begin to address myself and my life and so on. And of course, that's a, that's an enormous challenge. And um, oh, uh, another uh, interesting aspect for the Waldorf education is that the teacher begins uh, in the first grade, and uh, I took a class all the way through eight, eight grades. So that means I was their, their teacher from first, second, third, fourth, and so on all the way through. And there are obvious advantages to that. One, you get to know the students very intimately. You get to know the parents very well. And uh, there's a, a good rapport. You can, uh, challenges that a student is having can be watched and carried over uh, how well we're doing over the years and uh, developing this of that. Uh, Some children had uh, dyslexic kind of conditions, and how can we address that? It was nice to be able to work on that over years. Um, And I would say that, uh, although that's an ideal in Waldorf, that maybe 20, 25 percent of the teachers actually do that, uh, just because it's a modern world we live in. And and staying in one particular place for eight years and carrying on with uh, that work just isn't that common. Uh, but there, there is that ideal nevertheless.
0: It sounds like this whole system, you know, anthroposophy and Waldorf education, it's all based around, it's based around the individual and it, it's based around the individual finding freedom in their themselves and through that freedom grow, growing. That's and right. finding growth.
1: But it certainly doesn't exclude the group. Um, yes. uh, so there would be also, uh, the group resolving a problem, a challenge, uh, uh, studying a math problem, feel free to work together and and see if somebody can come up with this or the group can come up with this or all kinds of different projects that we would be creating craft-like things but more for science or something like that, Uh, gas balloons and that sort of thing. Um, And I think that this plays into also what Steiner presented in terms of man's evolution and development, that you had the individual and the individual need to achieve uh, independent awareness, uh, independent knowing, independent action, and that this is intimately related to our angels. You, you may have heard that, that idea that the angel is for is associate, each individual has their own angelic being. And then if you went to the archangelic beings, they work with groups of people. So you could have a group forming, uh, say, uh, in the faculty, and the faculty, each one of them would be coming forth and addressing a certain uh, problem or idea that the school was looking at. And each one would have their own perspective that they're bringing to that. So that might be say 12 perspectives, just to give this very holistic idea. And each one is presenting a unique idea. Each one is not holding to their idea. They present it and they release it to the group. This is of course an ideal, I can assure you that in Waldorf uh, groups, uh, there's a lot of challenge in, in mm-hmm. doing something like this. But um, Ideally, you have the group receive these 12 different perspectives and is able to release and hold them and receive a whole new uh, impulse uh, from even a higher source, say the archaic uh realm of hierarchies. And this has an inspiring effect upon the whole group. And the whole group begins to realize a whole new way of approaching the problem that none of the individuals would have been able to have come upon. Um, but because they're now working as a group organ, they can do so. So even this idea of, the, of a group working was based still in the individual achieving, at least to some extent, these ideas of the philosophy of freedom in order to really develop a, a, a higher organ of working in humanity that can address the problems that we'll be facing but from a very unique perspective, not from truly an individual perspective, but from the group.
0: That's so, almost that uh, that idea of the whole being greater than the sum of its parts.
1: Uh, definitely, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. And that kind of ties into the, the individual too, not just the group. That's right, yeah.
1: I'm not too sure where to go from here. Uh, seems like there would be quite a bit that we could go into. Uh, maybe different aspects of Waldorf education, but I think I should mention that Waldorf education was just one um, sort of, uh, I, I guess they call them daughter movements of the anthroposophical society. Uh, the other one that I think people might generally have have heard of before is biodynamic agriculture or horticulture. What that? Um, well, it, it, it was, uh, only one lecture series did he give on this, I think in 1924, uh, that people had been asking, well, what can we do agriculturally uh, to enhance uh, uh, crops, plants, and and our whole relationship to the plant kingdom? And uh, he made a presentation that is very challenging, I think, to, uh, to work through, and uh, it it was before there was anything that you would call organic uh, farming. Uh, chemical farming had only maybe just begun at that time and they were recognizing then that there are definite problems uh, associated with this. And I think maybe uh, for a lay person to just try to get some handle on it, it's, he gave a, a kind of a new alchemical approach to treating the soil. Um, these are like homeopathic um, uh, treatments that he, would, that he came up with uh, uh, from using manure, silica, other herbs. Um, and, uh, and after these had been uh, treated for, say, a season, some, some over the winter, some over the summer, uh, they would be stirred in water for an hour, not in just one direction. You'd stir it and then you'd counter stir creating a chaotic condition after you had this very order, organized vortex that you created. So it, it, was, it was very, um, I don't know, I, I suppose some people would see it as, as almost a, kind of a magical uh, alchemical process. And uh, people who have done this type of farming, biodynamic farming, I've definitely noticed the uh, benefits on their land, uh, the surrounding areas, the, the plants. Uh, it's calling upon nature and the spirits of nature. It's calling upon the, the relationship of the stars and the, um, the zodiac influences. When do you plant a seed? Uh, do you plant it during a full moon or not? Um, do you work in the garden in the middle of the, the day, or do you prefer morning and evening? All these ideas, and I there's I think also a strong relationship with the biodynamic farming people. And uh, oh shoot, now I can't think of the name. Um, it's a it's a very current uh, holistic kind of farming idea of creating a forest. Uh, uh food forests and this sort of thing maybe you've heard of that
0: uh, yeah they lost. did things like that uh in the amazon i think i think they found a bunch of uh they found evidence of farming yeah. in the amazon
1: and that soil that they created uh, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, yeah uh, so that those kinds of ideas being renewed in our day um and uh i, <laughs> I can't believe i can't remember but where, where you're, you're using the way you lay the land, the changing of the land in order to capture water and to hold the water, and mm-hmm. uh, there's quite quite a few people that have done a lot of work on that have no relationship to anthroposophy or to biodynamics, but biodynamic farming has taken a lot of these uh, these ideas into a uh, into account in their work too.
0: Mm-hmm. You're kind of working with the land, and you're you're kind of observing how the land is, like how it's structured and you're using that to your advantage. So you're letting the land be itself and having that benefit you while you farm.
1: Definitely, but also you, you're, you're changing it too. You, yeah. you might make a ditch or whatever in order to capture water or you make a, uh, a raised bed or you make a pond or something like that in order to uh, increase the different uh, biodiversity on your property. Um, that, so that, that's something that's, uh, that people have heard of uh, Biodynamics, Waldorf education But there's also uh, anthroposophical medicine uh, Which I, I can't really go into that very much Because uh, that's not my, my area of expertise at all uh, Music, he wrote plays uh, Mystery dramas And he did uh, speech exercise work uh, there are people that I know of who became involved in um, uh, the performing arts who were uh, taught by Steiner. I can't remember their names, but uh, they ended up in uh, in, uh, in Hollywood area. Um, not very many, but uh, that there are those who uh, have been influenced by Steiner in so many different areas. Architecture, he created this building called the Gertianum, um which is very unusual um, structure uh it it did burn down and uh, a new one was constructed but it's it wasn't the same it was uh on a different model and it was built out of concrete versus wood it, it's almost more like it's a, a housing that you would have contained the first building into um and i'm sure i'm leaving out other areas but um uh, Oh, Eurythmy, that was uh, uh, the art form that he developed, which was movement to music and speech, sound, and a very uh, artistic form and a very rigorous training for that uh, that uh, some people take up. And uh, Waldorf schools in general will bring Eurythmists in, and uh, the children are aware of that, and uh, all sorts of music work that he did so it, it's, it entered into every aspect of, uh, of practical life. He thought that was extremely important. Um, and I think when I was very young, uh, no one had heard of the name of, uh, of Rudolf Steiner, uh, just, just a handful here and there who were involved in the movement. And today uh, you'll see people pretty regularly quoting him Uh, So there's a lot more awareness of him now than there was uh, before. And so these ideas are now becoming more uh, mainstream. um, And I think that uh, that's a wonderful thing. Um, But it's also something that, that brings up the challenges of well, what exactly was he talking about Hmm. uh who really understands it who doesn't understand it and you get into all of these potential disputes about what what really is anthroposophy
0: yeah yeah, and a lot of people are probably going to butcher it and then hopefully those people don't have their idea of what anthroposophy is um become the the thing that's really popular right
1: right or, or or the the quote expert who knows all about it but does he really know all about it and uh, uh you know it's just like anything you could become um too much of a specialist too specialized and you begin to become uh, lost about what what else is going on around you you, you have to constantly be challenging yourself and,
0: um, that kind of goes back to how uh waldorf uh you wanted the curriculum to keep changing so it could you know, continue to challenge you and the, your fellow teachers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in, in, uh, in the Waldorf school, the faculty has a very, uh, uh, you might say powerful role. Some schools, they, they basically run the whole school. Um, Although there, there tends to be a certain impracticality around that. So usually some portion of the faculty will uh, designate or hire off uh, an administrator or um, some other entity to to help run the school because there's so many uh, things that have to be done. But uh, he really felt that it was very important that the faculty was very aware of every aspect of what was going on in the school, at least as much as possible, and to the extent that that was practical. And I can certainly uh, uh, vouch for how valuable that is and how enlivening that can be but also how stressful and uh, hard work uh, uh, that brings on to all of the faculty and all of the challenges and how in the modern world you actually make that work and uh, the school function and run. Especially in today's world where we've got um, the whole COVID thing going on. And uh, uh, For example, uh, computers were never a big thing. You, you would hear uh, people in uh uh, silicon valley steve jobs and so on uh, they wouldn't allow the kids to have the the computers when they were young their children and uh, often they would put them in waldorf schools because there were no computers basically allowed but now in the at least in the upper grades uh seventh grade sixth grade eighth grade they're starting to introduce these things more and more especially with uh the need to do uh, at-home schooling or, you know, the Zoom mm-hmm. the Zoom meetings and so on. So yeah. there's all kinds of things coming up in the modern times or our present times that uh, really challenge a lot of the views um, that I grew up with in anthroposophy within Waldorf education. And uh, so there's a lot of, I don't know about argument, but there's discussion that goes on around all of this quite a bit.
0: Yes. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, as I mean, a lot of careers these days require a computer. Yeah. But yeah. it is um, it's hard to have to adapt uh, the way that they teach um, for the modern world. Because, I mean, the modern world is much not uh, kind of in the way of uh, anthroposophy just because it's um so it's just so computerized
1: and, and it, the whole idea of the face-to-face meeting and mm. uh, and the idea that uh how much of communication is is in that meeting uh how much do we convey to one another uh that we are you might say normally subconsciously unaware of uh and yet when we're face to face, we do become aware of it. Uh, it's, it's more than just, I see your face or I see you speaking. It's, it's, uh, I experience you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and certainly for a teacher, uh, for my background anyway, it's very hard to read a class if you're not actually before them, uh, to gain a sense of, are they understanding what I'm saying? Uh, is there a whole nother, uh, uh, direction I should be going in in terms of my presentation right now based upon what I'm sensing and experiencing with the class so uh, I think that those ideas uh, need to somehow get back it's very hard to do that over a computer screen uh, and just to have a flickering image on the other end and make, make a, a real contact with another individual
0: hmm and it seems like uh, uh, intimacy is a really important part of uh, Anthroposophy. At least, um, being fully there, being in the, being fully in where you're at, you know, being fully aware of what's going on, paying attention, um, being focused, uh, and, and really living in the moment of the experience.
1: Definitely. Uh, and that gets back to the idea of being, you know, thinking your own thoughts, uh, being aware of your own feelings, and your, where are my impulses uh, of action coming from? Uh, for example, are they coming from an addictive kind of place? Uh, and then, of course, you have to go through that whole process of waking up. oh, yes, I am addicted. And then there's something I want to do about that addiction. And then the whole struggle of actually freeing yourself from that addiction and how challenging that can be. Uh, So all of those things play into it. Uh, And certainly anthroposophy is not the only uh, philosophy or religious perspective that takes this into account, but that's certainly a big, big part of what anthroposophy is all about.
0: So how did you manage to give up caffeine?
1: Uh, well, just a very long struggle. Uh, first, you know, uh, I love drinking coffee. Uh, I would start noticing at a certain point that I would get uh, I'd have my cup of coffee and I'd start getting really tired. And, uh, and it was like, well, uh, the coffee's really not doing kind of what you generally we think of as coffee doing. In fact, I can feel it working against me. And then I would try to get off coffee. Uh, I'll take a couple weeks off coffee. Well, as it turns out, it's not always that easy. You get, you know, some people, not everybody, uh, gets uh, you know, some really uh, intense headaches. Uh, as I would get older, these headaches would become even more severe. Um, and just basically I, pounding my head against the wall, you might say, and uh, uh, having the challenge of this isn't really that good for me Uh, it's hard very slowly getting longer and longer breaks from when I would do coffee I play games like oh I've been off coffee for a couple months I'll have a cup of coffee once a week and then after a while I'd find myself at a family gathering for Christmas or something and now I'm back on coffee every day now Um, and then uh, at some point I finally was able to get it to where I got a, a year under my belt two years and so on and now now, I, I can actually say that I'm basically free of it, although I, I do hold to that same uh, idea, I suppose, like the Alcoholics Anonymous thing, whereas um, I, I don't think that it would be a good idea for me to go back to having coffee or having a cup of coffee that I can't occasionally have a cup of coffee. <laughs> it's just not, uh, not part of my background, and I've, I've kind of proven that that didn't work for me. And I think people have that experience. And I mean, there's so many things we could describe, describe as addictions today, uh, such as screen time, for example. Uh, I, think, mm-hmm. I think some studies recently or fairly recently came out that showed that uh, for some people anyway, uh, getting off of their screen uh, by you know isolating them or removing them, they go through withdrawal symptoms similar to uh, going off of heroin or something like that, literally vomiting and all kinds of uh, really hard uh, uh, withdrawal type symptoms. Um, So we've got a lot in our modern life that we need to be looking at that's very challenging on on all of us and uh, the pollutants that are being brought in. And uh, I think uh, one thing that I'm strongly involved with now is the involvement of the electromagnetic Uh, influences on on everybody, Wi-Fi frequencies, and now they're gonna go into these uh, nanometer or millimeter frequencies with the 5G and uh, and the dangers that are involved in that, or at least the potential dangers. Uh, How well have we really studied this? I think we're kind of barreling along uh, and not really looking at how to do this safely that there's so many things in life like that right now.
0: Hmm. So it's, so with the whole caffeine thing, it's, uh, it's kind of you listening to your body and seeing, Oh, you know, this, this stuff isn't really working for me. It's not, it's not, you know, I feel like it's not, a, uh, it's not helping me at all. And I'm, I'm actually not free because it's, uh, it's trapping me.
1: Right. Exactly. And uh, it's, it's going back to the philosophy of freedom that uh, how little I am free, you might say. How little there is in my life where I can say I have, I have really uh, control. And one of those was with the, the coffee for me and, uh, and the challenge of uh, getting off. I didn't join a group or anything like that, although I'm sure that a group work would have been uh, much more beneficial for me Uh, in terms of trying to get off of coffee. And if I had something that I think society generally regarded as a more serious addiction, say like alcohol, um, then uh, I would have definitely been seeking out a group because uh, it's very challenging to try to free yourself from addictions just on your own.
0: So is there anything that you would like to leave us off with?
1: uh just that uh, there's uh, anybody who wanted to contact me further about uh, anthroposophy or how they can find out more about it uh, there's my email address I think those will be in the show notes. There's a site that they can look at some of uh, the books that I've written they can just access them right there on site and print them up if they want to um, sell them if they want to <laughs> uh, it's one of those open-ended uh, copyrights and uh and then also uh rudolf steiner archive that's online where they can uh, get an english translation of pretty much everything that he has written lectures that he's given uh and they can uh, spend the rest of their life uh, on that website if they want to
0: yeah some of his uh, his lectures are actually on on youtube like uh, a voice recordings of them. yeah yeah Cool. Uh, Well, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. And I wish the best to you and your podcast.
0: Thank you. And these interviews. Um, And if anyone has any questions, just email into.v.absurd.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.